And for that reason, yeah, we're probably going to sell it at a much better cap rate and we're going to surprise our investors by giving them a huge amount back compared to what we initially promised, which will keep them coming back. And that's ultimately what you want to do. It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by Ecospace.com. Now here's your hosts, Adam and Jason. Welcome back to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam, Triple Adams. And today we actually have Sandhya Sashardri. How are you, Sandhya? Doing great, Adam. Thank you for uh, having me on your show. It's such an honor to be here. Oh, it's an honor to have you. You've got a lot of experience when it comes to passive investments. I know you've did a lot in the stock market over the last several years. You did a lot in the stock market. I know also last several years, you've been diversifying into about 3,000 apartments, 3,000 yep. different apartments. And so what I'm excited about is that you probably have more information, more background, more ideas, more solutions to helping the listener be able to properly vet an operator. Being invested in that many doors, um, you've probably learned a thing or two. You've probably seen some, some problems and you've probably seen some that really went smoothly. And so... For any listener who's, who's checking out the show um, and you do want to be a passive investor, even if you want to be an operator, Sanjay's operating as well, um, but if you want to be an operator and a passive investor, that's what I do. I'm passively invested in 1,100 doors, nowhere near what Sanjay's done. And, um, and then we operate 380 doors currently. Uh, so that's what my company manages. Now, if you, if you are somebody who's saying, I definitely want to be a passive investor. I definitely want to get my money working for me. I want to utilize OPT. What's OPT, Sandia? Other people's time. If, if you want to utilize other people's time, this is the show for you. Uh, Sandia has uh, a background in, in technology. She is just like my, my bio daddy. Uh, an electrical engineer. I love it. I love engineers. There's always so many engineers that find themselves in multifamily. Just like with Sandia, she she was looking at everything that was possible. She started doing this in, in the stock market, this in the stock market. And then I think she kind of gravitated like some engineers do <laughs> toward multifamily. I think that there's a, a risk profile that engineers tend to continue to say, I need to go to multifamily instead of some of the other asset classes that I've seen. 30 years background in, um, in DFW. Are you in Dallas, Dallas, or are you like right outside? I'm right outside Dallas in a suburb called Richardson. But if you walk 10 doors down from me, then you're in Dallas. So uh, pretty close to the Dallas-Richardson border, just north of it. All right. Well, we're about to jump into some questions, Sandia, but before we do, tell us a little bit of, uh, more about your background and why you've chosen multifamily. So my background is in electrical engineering, and I worked for a Fortune 500 company here in Dallas uh, for a, over a decade. And I went moved slowly from the technical side to the business side because I realized that it was the marketing and salespeople who were constantly telling us what to do. And my company was so wonderful that they paid for me to go to uh, get an evening MBA, evening and part-time MBA. And uh, the financial knowledge gave me the confidence to get started on the stock market with options and then just trading full-time. Um, once I had children, it just made sense for me. I started making enough money from the stock market that it replaced my engineering income. And so 
Um, I could dictate my hours and be my own boss. Um, and then once President Trump took over and I realized that he was paying zero taxes, I was like, how does he do that? And every rich person I know is in real estate. So I really wanted to explore real estate, but I was afraid to do single family because I didn't want to spend my time self-managing one property at a time. So when I heard from a friend about multifamily, it was like, oh, this is the perfect fit. I loved all the math that goes into underwriting and analyzing a deal. I just love my numbers, just like I think most engineers do. So it's, it's such a perfect fit to be analyzing deals, underwriting them, and then living in Dallas, which seems to be the hub for so many deals and brokers and everything. It just made perfect sense to start into getting into multifamily. And for me, the best way to learn the business was to invest passively so that I get some of the benefits of other people's time, but then I don't have to spend my time and take all the risks of a sponsor in investing in multifamily. So passive investing has been such a great source of cash flow and a really good alternative to the stock market because uh, every month I get reports from my sponsors and I get to ask them what's going on with the deal, question some of the things they do. And I actually drive to my passive investment property. So I invest in the Dallas area just so I can do that. So I don't get to do that when it's you know the CEO of Amazon or Facebook or someone like that, right? So you get a really good feel for a deal when you can actually drive to that property, speak to the sponsors, uh, look at those monthly reports. And I've learned a lot because I have about 15 different deals that I'm invested passively in. And boy, um, I can tell you the, the good and the not so good from all of them. So with the good and the not so good from all these different 15 deals I, that you've been passively invested in, mm-hmm. um, what I want to do is, and, I'm, and, and I, I guess we got to be careful to mm-hmm. not disclose people's identities, oh, yeah. but um, let's talk about a couple of the not so good. Okay. So one of the biggest things when you invest in multifamily is really to get to know your sponsor or sponsorship team. And one of the deals I invested in, there were two amazing deal sponsors, both with a strong track record. But this was the first time the two of them were working together um, on this deal. And there was a strong personality clash. And so whatever one person wanted to do, it was, it was like the exact opposite that the other person wanted to do. You name it, whether it's a property management company, the financing, the way you go about asset managing the property, agreeing on the plan, et cetera. So somehow once they closed the deal, there was always so much of a clash that they had trouble executing their plan to make this deal work. And we just never got payments. Six months into the deal, I was hoping for my first cash flow to begin and it didn't happen. And after repeated questions, um, they finally started to come to an agreement. They almost like handed off one project to one person making all the decisions and then the other. And so the biggest thing lesson learned for me from that is that sponsorship teams need to have clearly delineated roles and they need to make sure they can work together and who is the decision maker for what. So for example, one person could cover the investor relations, but another person is the main asset manager who will deal with the property management company and execute the plan. And when you don't have that, you're gonna have a problem. How can you vet in order to understand if, they, if the sponsor has pure delineated roles? Like how, what do you do to ask them that question or to find that information out? 
I think when you are presented the investment opportunity, the webinar, when you listen to it, you probably have to ask that question. And I have seen some deals where there's seven or eight sponsors. And that to me is an immediate no-no. I think two to three people is the ideal number, maybe four, but certainly not more than that. And they need to have clearly delineated roles. And another thing you look for in teams is, do they have complementary skills. So one person is an expert in construction and is probably going to be your asset manager. And another person is like your typical marketing type, as I call it, the good talker who's going to manage your investor relations and communications, for example. So I would definitely ask that question if it is not presented in your webinar as to who is your go-to person for questions and how do you contact the team and who's doing what role. To me, that's very important. Mm. Makes, makes sense. And so why is the webinar, when they're pitching the deal, the best time to ask that question? It's a good time because all passive investors are listening and then you are helping others as well while answering a very important question. I mean, certainly it would be good to know this prior to that, but typically you get an email with a webinar link and that's where you get to see the team members, their pictures, their slides and how they're going about it. And typically they take turns presenting it. So you kind of have an idea who is the financial person and who is the more marketing type right away from that webinar. But if that's not clear to you, you still want to know, okay, once you close this deal, who's going to be running the property? Who's going to be the main interface with property management? Those are definitely important questions to ask. Okay. Because you want to know their background and experience in running that kind of a deal. So, and I've, I've worked with you for, since 2019, and I know you have a whole bunch of different, um, I guess, uh, what would be the best way? Just valuable questions to ask for operators, for other past investors who are looking to do what you've done and to see your success. What other, what other questions do you think that a past investor needs to be asking operators? Like what, what else do they need to be vetting and understanding before, way before they actually do a deal? You, and before you answer that, you, make, you made an example um, before we started recording this, you, you shared an example of reversion cap rate. <laughs> and, and, I was, and I thought to myself, when you were talking about the reversion cap rate, I thought to myself, oh my gosh, that's the biggest red flag because an operator can make a deal look multi-millions dollars uh, more valuable by putting a, a six cap instead of an eight cap mm-hmm. um, or a five and a half instead of a, fi- uh, uh, a six yeah. And, uh, and I was thinking to myself, man, you know, there's a lot that the listener needs to know before they end up passively investing with an operator. So can you throw out a few of the ideas that you've, you have that can help a passive investor make sure that they're not going to be wasting money or losing money or getting in business with somebody who's totally, um, you know, going to mess things up? Yeah, I think the first thing is to get to know your sponsorship team. Do you know, like, and trust them? For example, if I was going to invest with Adam, the first thing I would do is listen to a bunch of his podcasts and see what type of a person he is. Do I like the way he thinks? Do I like the kind of questions he asks? The next thing I would do is ask for a track record. If there are three team members in a sponsorship team, is this the first time they're coming together and doing a deal or have they done deals before in the past? And if so, what is their track record? 
like when they made a webinar investor presentation, this is what they promised you in returns per quarter or monthly or annual, right? Did they come up with that? Do they have a track record? Do they have a spreadsheet which shows all the properties they've done and how they performed even by quarter? And when they didn't perform as promised, what happened? Do they have a solid explanation for it? To me, that's one of the most important things is once you know, like, and think you can trust them. Then the next thing is the financial record. It's like, how well did you do in your past in managing properties? Or is this your first time? And if this is your first time, then do you have someone with experience to assist you in the process? Or are you just a newbie and I'm going to be your scapegoat, so to speak? As much as I like you, you know, if you're going to go invest in Alaska, do you have any experience? Do you know the Alaska market, for example, right? So every market varies. And so you need to have the experience in that particular location and really know it well and have a strong track record in the past. That would be some of the most important things I would look for in a sponsorship team. So if I was a listener mm -hmm. and I knew that Sandia's passively invested in 15 different deals with multiple different operators in a few different cities, mostly in the DFW market, um, it, and you're saying that um, the listener needs to know, like, and trust the sponsor. Um, I, I have some thoughts or some questions around that, thinking about, like, um, what happens if you trust a sponsor, but you don't know them or like them? Like, do you skip, do you skip investing with them if you don't get along with them? Um, yeah, just curious your thoughts. I think it's nice to get along with them because it makes it easier for you to ask questions than when you don't have that connection. So I like to also be able to connect with them and I like to know at least one person in the sponsorship team as my go-to person mm -hmm. with whom I would ask all those questions. I want it to be easy when I read a report to immediately be able to go and ask those questions. So as far as liking the person, I mean, you may not get to meet every person in the sponsorship team, but you need to have at least one go-to person that you can get along with enough to ask questions. It's like your doctor, you know, does your, do you like their bedside manner for a doctor. It's nice to have, right? I mean, every doctor can treat you the same way for the same thing, but if they have a better bedside manner and two doctors are alike, I would pick the one with a better bedside manner because I'm more comfortable talking to them. So it's my money, it's my hard earned money. It took me probably a year to earn that money after taxes. I need to really like this person or mm -hmm. agree with their values to be able to trust them with my hard earned money. Love that. Love that. Now, now, for you, Sandia, with your 15 different properties that you've invested passively in or, or done key principal and signed on the loan for other sponsors, stuff like that, um, and you're, you're starting to go and find them, where have you found your sponsors? Like, how do you, how do you get to even know them? Are these, are these podcast hosts? Are these people that are uh, coaches and mentors in a in somebody's coaching program um, are are they people that were on stage once in a while or did you like where did you find these these people because with the no like trust we've I think we've gone in pretty good detail on being able to trust somebody before you invest with them I, I, it makes complete sense about you know being able to like them and that and why that's important and their bedside manner and so now I'm wondering. This could. This is a question that I think can help 
operators who are listening to this and want to be better at getting in front of the right people so that they can, uh, so people can know who they are so that they can even start to like them and trust them. And I think it's also going to be a beneficial question for you to go into for any passive investors to understand how Sandia was able to find these different operators that you invested in. So one way is certainly to listen to podcasts, listen to people and say, do I agree with the way they think in terms of financially? Do they have a strong um, financial background or somebody in the team? But for me, many of them I found through meetups, conferences, and within a mentoring group. So the ones I found within a mentoring group really helped because I knew how they underwrite their deals. I know about their conservative underwriting. So when you mentioned reversion cap rate, for example, I almost look for a two-point difference, one and a half to two-point difference between the in-place cap rate at which you buy the property versus the reversion cap rate at which you sell it three, four years later. What are you predicting the market to do? And so to go conservative, you up it by about one and a half to two points from when you buy it. So that's an example of conservative underwriting. So I look for how conservative or aggressive their underwriting is. And I give, ask them for examples of a past deal. So as I build these relationships, I ask them, oh, I heard this deal is going really well. Why don't you share the underwriting with me? And I'd like to see how you think. So that is one way of doing it. Um, another one is like I said, meetups and conferences. When you meet people, are you able to connect with them, right? And when you connect with them, do you like the way they think financially? Do you like how the conversation goes in terms of evaluating opportunities? Are the target markets that they focus on, are they aligned with yours? Because you may just say, I'm never going to invest in multifamily in California or you know, New York or Alaska for that matter. I'm going to stick with Dallas, Fort Worth. So if all of their investments are in a different location, then you know, that, that's one of my screening criteria is I want to mm -hmm. be able to drive to the properties. So... Okay, that makes that makes a lot of sense. One of the things that we've discussed a couple of times on the podcast today uh, is the reversion cap rate and how important it is. Um, but what's funny is is um, it's a it's a term that I know that there's many listeners who understand, and there's many other listeners who uh, don't really know what it means. You you mentioned you know a cap rate that you buy it at, and you mentioned. A conservative was raising it up a point, a point and a half, two points, depending on certain things on the exit. Um, can you go into detail on what it, what would happen if, if I said that I was going to exit at a, uh, if I said I'm going to exit at a, at a five cap and I'm buying it at a five cap and I'm exiting in five years, um, what kind of potential thing might happen? Because to me, uh, if I was a brand new passive investor, like brand new, okay, they're buying it at a five. Seems normal because in the area, it's, it's, it's between five, five and a half. Oh, they're selling it at five. Seems normal because they're improving the property. So they should probably sell it around what they're buying it from. That's what I would have naturally thought before. So could you help the listener understand, you know, what the concern is around reversion cap rate? So regardless of the time that you are investing in a property, a few years down the road, it is very hard to predict what the market is going to do. So let's say today during the middle of this lovely COVID crisis, a purchase, property is purchased at a five cap, as uh, Adam said. So in five years, we don't know that the market is going to do 
just as well or worse. So you always assume that it's going to be a lot worse, which means your property in five years is going to sell at a higher cap rate. And what that does is that a higher cap rate, meaning a lower a high- price per, uh, right. per income. Right. So today, if I'm buying a property at a five cap rate, I'm paying a bigger price for it today than if I was buying it at a seven cap. So a higher cap rate actually means that your property is going to get sold in five years for a lower price, which means the returns are going to be lower, which means your underwriting is more conservative. So it is better to under promise and over deliver. So for example, the property we syndicated last year, we bought it at about a five, five and a quarter kind of cap rate in the Dallas area. But our reversion cap rate when we presented the opportunity to investors was seven and a quarter. Holy so good cow. two points more. Wow. Yeah. So in four years when I sell the property, if the cap rate is six and a half, we're all going to make a really nice profit from it, right? So we only promised our investors a 70% return in five years. We're probably going to do much better than that, but I'd rather under-promise and over-deliver on something like this. So that's why I say be really careful and look for that reversion cap rate because if someone says it's the same reversion cap rate at which they compared the purchase price this year, the same cap rate, you don't have any margin. You don't have any room to improve that. That is like a best case scenario being presented to you. And that may not always come true. It's like if everything works out perfectly kind of scenario. Which which usually doesn't happen. Which never happens, right? So, so yeah, that makes... Don't bet on it. So that property that you were purchasing at like a five, five and a half cap and you have um, an expectation that you've shared with your past investors to sell it at a seven and a quarter cap. Mm-hmm. Just um, can you explain what what is the whole price of the property right now? What's the purchase price? Um, we bought it at just under seven million. Okay. And so- so at seven million, I, I'm going to try. I want to do some. What do you What do you think you'll sell it at, or like, what's your um, expectation on your pro forma, even with your conservative underwriting? It's hard to say what the market will do and at what point we will do that because okay. there's always the option of a long term hold. We're considering because we love the property so much, but we will probably do a cash out refi kind of thing in a few years. And we will do a probably a call with all the investors and let them vote whether they want to stay on and enjoy the cash flow or if they want to get their money out and go on and take the money to some other investment. So it's a little hard to predict exactly what that time frame might be. Um, so I don't want to guess on the numbers at this time on that okay. property. Um, what I'm, what I'm, so it sounds like wh- around the time that you're going to be selling this property, it's it's mm-hmm. easily going to be netting. Um, it, the cash flows are going to be o- a little over half of a million. It sounds like that's r- really what you're looking at for the projection. And if I divide that by a five and a half cap, for instance, you mm-hmm. know, it's a difference of, it's a difference of of, of around two million almost. Mm-hmm. Just just having a, that little change. So mm-hmm. uh, what you're saying uh, is, and how I think it translates to some of the listeners, is, look, if, if I'm saying that I'm going to buy it at a five and sell it at a five, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. um, I'm pro- I'm probably overestimating how much money I can make on it. I'm mm-hmm. probably saying I'm going to make three or four million more. And all of a sudden now I do, I go the other route and I say a seven cap, it gives you that buffer. So if you're pro, I'm guessing you're not going to sell it at a seven and a quarter. I'm guessing the market's going to be way stronger than that, especially in Dallas. Mm -hmm. And so there's going to be a lot of room where, where the uh, passive investor probably makes a lot more than Mm -hmm. they were even expecting is kind of what we're saying. Right. Yes. Most deals that I see, they're underwriting it with a reversion cap rate of six and a half for the Dallas area. And we underwrote it for seven and a quarter. And so far, our collections have been strong in April compared to March. And uh, for May, which is still a few days away, um, it's already at 70% of the total collections because we gave our tenants an incentive if they pay on time that they would get a gift card. So I really don't see this property slowing down anytime. And for that reason, yeah, we're probably going to sell it at a much better cap rate and we're going to surprise our investors by giving them a huge amount back compared to what we initially promised, which will keep them coming back. And that's ultimately what you want to do. You want to keep uh, delivering and over-delivering on what you promised to your investors. Yeah, I see too many operators right now um, claiming the opposite direction of reverse and cap rate because it sounds like what you're trying to do is you're trying to start uh, relationships that that um, grow over time. And what I feel some syndicators are trying to do, which is why I wanted you on the show today to talk about this, is is that that I'm confident that I know a few people that care more about acquisition fees and disposition fees and, and closing deals and saying, I have uh, this many doors to my name and, and they are manipulating cap rates and, Mm -hmm. um, and rent bumps and uh, the comps that they're using and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because what their goal is, is to just close on the deal. Mm-hmm. And, and figure out the other stuff later. But you're really figuring out in the beginning, mm-hmm. I care more about adding value to people for the next 30, 40 years versus just closing on a deal and making a couple dollars. Because if you do what some syndicators are doing, um, if somebody did that or if somebody invested with them, they could lose a ton of money. It might work out for a few months, but then later on, there could be some problems. Um, so we are, I want to make sure that for the for the podcast that um, we keep moving at a pace for the for the main listener, which I think we most, mostly have attention spans of 20 to 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And um, you and I have gone into some heavy detail on some of this stuff. Um, and so I don't want to cut the listeners off that are like, this is just getting good. Like we're mm-hmm. talking about getting to know our sponsor. We're talking about no like trust. We're talking about understanding what goes into a track record, talking about the experience that they have in the location. A lot of people are like, well, I've never closed a deal here ever before, but I've closed other deals. So this is my first one here. And, and I think you would say, don't, don't be the guinea pig. Right. Yeah. Don't don't be the first person to invest in a in a market where they have no idea, uh, they've never experienced it before. Is that true? 
Yes, I'm very particular that someone needs experience in that particular local market because even within Dallas, where I've lived 30 years, um, proximity to downtown Dallas, if you're on the south side of it, there are some um, high crime neighborhoods there. And so if you don't know that and you don't have an experience turning around a property that needs some heavy lifting, as I call it, and deep value add, then um, I can't uh, invest with you on such a deal because you just don't have the experience and I don't want to be your guinea pig. So there are so many other things I can talk about in terms of vetting a sponsorship team. And even though we can't cover it in depth on this episode, um, you will get it when you reach out to me on my website. Can I talk about that, Adam? Oh, that would be very valuable. Um, and the website is, I know your website, multifamily for you, but the four is, is not spelled out and yeah. you is spelled out. Mm-hmm. The four is the number and you is spelled out. But um, regardless, it's, I'm going to just put it in the show notes. It'll be, it's there now for any listener. Scroll down, multifamily for you. Sandhya's got some really epic um, information. If you're our passive investor and you want to protect yourself, if you don't want to invest with the wrong people, like she's got this whole checklist that you can, that you can use. And, and I, I love it. I think that you're going to get a lot of value out of it. So yeah, that's awesome. Multifamily for you. And how do they, how, how, what would be the best way for them to reach out to you so that they can get, um, all of the details on what to do when vetting a sponsor. Um, If they go to my website and just connect with me by providing their name and email address, I will send them the checklist to vet a sponsor and I will ask them if they want to subscribe to future messages from me. And they have the option with one click to say yes or no for future emails, because the last thing I want to do is spam anyone. So if they find it useful, they will continue to get more messages on how to vet a sponsor. What are some key numbers to look for when you're analyzing a deal? Like reversion cap rate is just one uh, important point, but what about closing costs? Ask for a detailed breakdown of those closing costs. And are you okay paying an acquisition fee to your sponsorship team? And if so, how much? What is an acquisition fee? It is a fee that the sponsorship team charges you or pays themselves as soon as they close the deal, well before they even start to manage your asset. So it's like a fee paid for their time to go and find this deal and analyze it, underwrite it, present it to you and close it. That's it. They have not started managing the asset and they have not paid you a dime for your investment with them. So how much of an acquisition fee do you want to pay them? That is one thing that is included in the closing costs. So just like that, there are so many specific financials you should look for in detail when you analyze a deal. And I can provide those kind of um, details to you as well in subsequent messages, if that's of interest to you once you subscribe. Awesome. Awesome. But just to be clear, um, they reach out on your website. They, they just put the name and email. They're not on your email list yet. They're just going to get the info that you were talking about. And That's if they right. want to be on the email list, they say yes. If they don't, they just say no and they just get the free thing. That's right. Okay. Okay. Got it. Got it. Well, let's move into the final five. We're okay. going to take a quick break, but first a word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Adam Adams and I am thrilled and excited to announce the launch of my brand new, brand new YouTube channel. So I don't know if you like YouTube or not, if you watch YouTube or not, but if you do, head over and please subscribe to the Apartment Investing Show. This 
YouTube channel is 100% about apartments only. If you're looking to fix and flip, not the right show for you. If you're looking to invest in hotels, not the right show for you. This is the apartment investing show, and I mean the apartment investing show, and I'm thrilled and excited about it. If you can, do me a giant favor, run over there right now if you're a YouTube watcher and find the apartment investing show, please give me a rating and a review, like give us a thumbs up and subscribe, click that bell. We're going to be pushing out some amazing content on the YouTube channel. So if you are looking to scale and grow and get into apartments, whether it's syndication or just owning these on your own, the Apartment Investing Show is the right show for you. Go look for the Apartment Investing Show on YouTube right now, and I'll see you there. And we're back with Miss Sandia Shishardri. And I'm excited to have you on the show. We've learned so much about vetting sponsors and that free giveaway is extremely valuable. So thank you. Um, Let's get into the final five. The first question that I have is what is the most creative deal you've ever done? The most creative deal I have done is last year when we had to raise money for this deal. And uh, a week before we were going to close, I had two of my passive investors say that they were going to reduce the amount they were going to invest in the deal from Mm -hmm. 200K to the minimum 50K. And we were just like, what? And we had to scramble last minute. And then we heard from our uh, lender that we actually got 80% LTV instead of 75%. So we were kind of covered and we got all the money we needed anyway. So it worked out, but we all had to have the extra cash reserves. So that's something I will tell you is no matter how much money you think you're going to raise, have a lot of capital reserves, especially in this COVID time. Love it. Love it. What's a book you recommend? I'm a big fan of uh, Grant Cardone, so I like this book, actually. Sell or be sold, Grant Cardone. Got it. Um, How about where do you see the market five years from today? I see the market a little bit softer than what it was a year ago, but definitely better than what it is um, in this fall, considering the COVID crisis. Okay. What about you? Where's What's your plan um, for your business? Where do you th- see yourself in five years? I see myself um, holding steady at a good 70-30 kind of split where 70% of my investments are still passive investments, but the 30% that I do as a, as a, a GP or a sponsor is where I still have a very close hands-on Um, eye on it so that it's not left to somebody who I don't know in a different state, for example. Got it. Got it. So closely managing my properties. What's the best way for you to give back? One of my passions is math. So one of the things I do is I tutor math for free to a lot of people and education is another passion. So I give away a lot to educational institutions, but we also do community activities in our properties. So we're putting together COVID care packages. That's something we're handing out to tenants, for example. So anything I can do in terms of free health screenings and involve the other businesses in the community to come and promote it to my apartment community is uh, one of the ways I give back. And the best way for the listener um, who wants to be able to find you, get a hold of you, and get that resource? My website, multifamilyforyou.com. 
where it's the number four and Y-O-U. And if they just put in their name and email address, they can get in touch with me. They can also email me directly, multifamily4you at gmail.com. Awesome. Sandia, thank you for coming on. Um, I feel like we could do two days on this topic and still have more available. But it's it's good that you have that giveaway uh, multifamily for you com and then just put in your name and email and you're, you're going to get more information on how you can really protect yourself as a passive investor because not all operators are created equal. Um, so today we talked a lot about um, reversion cap rate. We talked about acquisition fee considerations, what's high, what's not too high. And um, all that stuff is, is all in the free giveaway. But um, please, if you are trying to be Passive. If you are trying to utilize OPT, um, don't take that for granted. That is a free resource to you to save you hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, Sandia, thanks for coming on. I'm going to let you go, but until next time, my friend, think outside. The Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Creative Real Estate Podcast. Jason Lewis and myself, Adam Adams, are grateful to have you as a loyal listener. And I do have one quick favor to ask is if you are looking for apartment investing, then go to apartmentinvestingshow.com. That is the brand new YouTube channel that I just launched. Brand new YouTube channel. Uh, Again, this is only for apartment investing. That's all we talk about there. It is the apartment investing show and you can find it by going to apartmentinvestingshow.com. 